You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld, and this afternoon I'm speaking with the delightful Ross Taylor. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you. So we were just talking for a sec. You're, you are celebrating your five-year anniversary living in New York and doing improv in New York. Yeah, August was five years. Congratulations. Thank you. Where are you from originally? From a small town in Missouri called St. James. And what were you improvising in, in St. James? No, no. Were you acting? Uh, no, not in St. James. Yeah. I, I did my first play at uh, St. James High School, which was A Tale of Two Cities. Uh-huh. And then I moved to uh, Jefferson City, which is a somewhat larger city. And that's where I got into speech and debate and theater and eventually improv. Yeah. What led to improv? Um, it was just one of the categories offered in speech and debate. Yeah. And I, I have a little medal that once I won third place in the tournament for yeah. improv, but I have no recollection of ever really doing it yeah. or having any kind of concept of what it was. Yeah. I remember doing um, one thing, which was a Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky improv scene. Ooh, do you remember the content of the scene? Oh, I'm pretty sure it was just a ripoff of whatever was on us. <laughs> <in a film>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you um, posted recently on Facebook about your anniversary in New York, mm-hmm. and I found it a very touching, very moving post uh, because you have now, correct me if I'm wrong, just completed a full year where you've been able to make your living doing nothing but acting and comedy and improv. Yeah, and teaching coaching, and that's that's it. Congratulations. It's like, yeah, it's exciting. It's yeah, exciting. yeah, that's awesome. So so um, uh, how did you get there, Ross? <laughs> Such a long distance from uh, where I grew up to like this yeah. point, especially now I feel somewhat savvy in New York. Yeah. Uh, but it was not that way when I first got to New York. Yeah. Well, uh, as a, I'm a native New Yorker myself, mm-hmm. so I'm always super curious to hear like what people's first impressions are when they come here. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I knew nothing really about the city. I had been to New York um, in college three times. We had this little program called Mizzou on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, the college I went to, his nickname is Mizzou. And we'd come up for five days and do a play, two showings at uh, the York Theater, which mm-hmm. is in the basement of the city building. It's like four basements. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd been here three times, but I had no idea of like what it would look like for me to come and pursue acting yeah. uh, auditions or any of this stuff at all. Uh, so whenever I moved here, uh, I knew I was going to take uh, classes at some comedy theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, right before I moved, I had this weird interaction with a guy on Craigslist and he recommended to me Magnet Theater. He said, if you're any good, you can move along quickly. Mm. So, uh, and also I had seen this DVD in, uh, art by committee, the second Sharna Halpern book and it had a DVD in it. And one of the teams was the Armando Diaz experience. So I was like, Oh, there's a name and this is this theater. So I'll go there. Yeah. (laughs) It worked out okay for you. It's great. Yeah. Without knowing whatsoever. I I have a feeling if I had gone to like say UCB first, I would be a completely different improviser performer than I am right now. Yeah. What was your, did you approach improv with like a a plan in mind of what you wanted to get out of it? Or was it sort of like dipping your toes into it and kind of like finding yourself in a place that you enjoyed? I just knew I was going to commit to some community Yeah. as opposed to uh, just auditioning in the theater world, which is very disconnected. Uh, The people don't hang around each other. Yeah. So I knew that this would sort of um, let me keep my technical skills sharp as a basic performer. Yeah. And then I would also audition and do the theater stuff. Yeah. I didn't really expect to become as involved in the comedy world as I am. Yeah. 
and now five years into it, mm-hmm. you're a very active coach. You're starting yeah. to teach classes. You're doing both musical improvisation and non-musical improvisation. You have your first uh, show as a director or first mm-hmm. director series going to be opening up in uh, February. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, can you talk about the director series show for a sec? What, what sure. are you doing? All right. So um, the few times I've done the director series as a performer, it's been uh, with musical improv. Yeah. And the audiences that came were not quite as big as some of the other director series uh, audiences that I'd seen. So I thought to myself, if I direct it, I'll just treat it as a lab. This will be a total experiment. I'm not going to worry about like, I really want to pack the house. Yeah. So with that in mind, uh, this is going to be a, something called schlong form, which is a mixture of short form and long form. Basically, we will take a herald and add a couple of short form devices because I want to know if we can have more than just a single audience suggestion at the top, mm-hmm. maybe we can involve them a little more. Uh, and that's, that's what the idea is. Awesome. Uh, um, uh, you've recently come back from your second or your third? Uh, second. Second tour yeah. with Second City, mm-hmm. uh, um, where you have like a pretty healthy amount of experience doing short form. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, this is actually going to be a longer question, okay. but we'll start with the shorter part of the mm-hmm. question. So what have you been able to take away from your experience doing the cruise ships with Second City that you'd like to integrate now? Like, what have you learned doing short form for those particular crowds that you'd like to kind of like combine into the long form? Uh, I think it um, a little bit more participation from the audience really lights them up and engages them. Yeah. It's not that what we do on Wednesday nights at Megawatt is not engaging for the audience at all because yeah. they're engaged and they only give one word up top. But... On the ships, um, people were really excited to contribute, mm-hmm. and uh, just just a little bit. Uh, so I wonder if, in our long form thing, if we can have the audience contribute just a few more times in a show. I know a Friday night show does the things with slips of paper, mm-hmm. but I wonder if there could be a couple of other devices which wouldn't ruin and take away the um, creative aspect of the the ensemble. Yeah, you know, because I, I understand that too much of it would kind of wreck. The flow of a herald. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. When I um, was coming up in New York, there was a culture, I think it's pretty, pretty fair to say, a culture of disrespect towards short form. Mm-hmm. And I think like it took a long time for, for improv to kind of, I mean, improv has been in New York for a number of years. Um, but it really wasn't until UCB got here that it like got into the bedrock of the city and then things began to like, grow there were mm-hmm. small pockets of people and, and groups you know but like uh, um it didn't become sort of like a big cultural event until ucb got here and brought long form and brought the herald and, and brought the chicago philosophy um um when i was coming up the attitudes towards short form was as this sort of like hackneyed archaic old school approach where you're kind of like desperate and playing beneath your intelligence and doing anything for a laugh and it was like very much like if you were into short form, you were you were a joke to people. Mm-hmm. You know, like you weren't serious. Um, um, I also, like you, did the cruise ship with Second City, mm-hmm. and along with that, I'd never done short form short form before. They flew us out to Chicago, and we spent a week um, training. And with that training, we not only learned the shows that we were doing, but mm-hmm. had like a. a um, a two day long immersion in a series of games and like a crash course in how to put together a running order for a short form show. And um, I was surprised by how 
how much I loved doing the short form. And then when you get up and do it on the ships for the audience, it is such a delightful experience. I'm very happy to say that, at least to me, it sort of feels like in New York these days, the kind of like snobbiness towards short form has like evaporated a little bit. I think like originally long form had to distance itself from it in order to kind of like get its own credit, have Mm -hmm. its own credibility. But now that long form has become such a part of like the everyday culture of comedy here, short form is like finally having its due again. Mm -hmm. What was your experience like? What did you take away doing short form for people on the ship? Because it, it, it's totally different than doing Harold's. Absolutely. And I understand the sort of prejudice because on the ships, uh, you do a great short form show. The audience loves it. Yeah. And you walk off stage and you sort of think to yourself, you enjoyed that, but, this isn't the meat, you know, you, you, yeah. you don't know yet that there's something even greater out there. Yeah. But I think that most of this prejudice comes from not having tried it. Same, yeah. same as like with musical improv or something, you, you see a show and it's not the best and you think, well, that's short form, right. that's musical improv. But whenever you're forced to do it, it certainly gets you to the heart of the scene quicker. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to practice uh, showing something recognizable very fast yeah. so that the audience is with you and trusts you. Um, you can't be quite as patient, yeah. but it does give you a uh, sharpness uh, as, as well as with hosting. It's great to get up and have to host over and over and over and over. Yeah. Uh, certainly gets you comfortable being your stage self in front of everybody and uh, fumbling with words and things like that. Just kind of polishing. Yeah. Polishing. Can we talk for a second? Because uh, um, I would love to share this experience. This sure. was so great. Uh, um, so you've done two ships. Now, Second City, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, Second City has the main stage and the ETC stage in Chicago. They have their Toronto theaters. They have a number, they have three touring companies and, and a number of like smaller training theaters. Mm-hmm. But along with that, they also have a contract with um, Norwegian Cruise Line. How many ships are in the fleet right now, Tina? Uh, it's something like eight or 10. Yeah. I know that their contract is expiring for some of those ships. So yeah. this year, there's only going to be three or four, I believe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so in each of those ships, there's a cast of between five and six people mm-hmm. uh, um, performing best of Second City reviews mm-hmm. uh, as well as a couple of improv shows and the occasional murder mystery show and teaching workshops and stuff. Um, you've done two contracts mm-hmm. with it. You just came off of the breakaway, is mm-hmm. that correct? The That's sort of like monster ship in the fleet. Can you kind of take us through your experience of doing both of those contracts? And sure. I, 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 is, uh, yeah, please. Uh, the first ship I was on was a Norwegian Dawn. And as I understand it, it's very similar to your experience on the gym, yeah. correct? Uh, where you do... One sketch show twice in a night, and then later on in the, in the week, you'll do a family improv show and an adult improv show, and then the murder mystery, and that's mm-hmm. kind of your week. So the first ship contract was a breeze. <laughs> it was like mostly free time, so yeah. I could work on writing and go to the gym and go do beach stuff. Uh, the second one on the breakaway, we do 11 shows a week, and it's a couple of three show nights. Uh, overall, you do six improv shows and uh, three separate sketch shows. So it was a lot more work. Yeah, It was like every night you had to do a show, uh, which was good for productivity. Uh, you certainly made the most of your daytimes, but it was a little bit less uh, fun and carefree as the first contract. Yeah. I When I was on the gym, I was like, my dream was like, I want to get on the Epic. I want to do one of those 11 shows a week thing. Because I found myself just jonesing to be working. Yeah. You know, not to knock cruise life. It was a wonderful experience. But I, I found I was like, oh, I really want to work more. I want to, you know, uh, um, because like you do a sketch show, a sketch show 
It's a 45 minute show, mm-hmm. um, mostly sketches covering the last 50 years of Second City's history, mm-hmm. um, broken up by a few different improv games. You're doing it in front of 1500 people mm-hmm. um, on like a state of the art stage. Did you do river dance in your show? Um, no. We opened in mind with river dance, and so you just have a revolving stage with all of us dancing in this like uh, bizarrely choreographed sequence. It, like it's just such like an incredible experience that is so out of the realm of of our kind of like black box basement kind of underground world that mm-hmm. we live in as 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 New York City improvisers. Um, that I was just like hungry for more of like oh I want to like entertain. Mm-hmm. I. I'm curious, like, if it changed the way that you thought about performing by doing those contracts. A little bit. It certainly got me away from the comedy audiences of New York, which yeah. are very selective and have a tight, a tight uh, taste. Yeah. Um, and on the ships, you're with regular audiences of people of all ages and backgrounds, and um, the the feeling of pleasing an enormous group of regular people yeah. is so satisfying. Yeah, because to satisfy an elite comedy audience gives you a certain intellectual like, oh wow, I'm I'm pretty good. Uh, but to satisfy a regular audience, you feel like I could, my family could come to this show right. and they would really enjoy it. Yeah, and that's a whole other different kind of satisfaction, like the real world. Like I could go out and perform for anybody. Yeah, and uh, I could I could be successful. I found um, I had to make like a little mental shift in my first couple of weeks on the ship because I had to learn to think of myself as more of an entertainer than I normally do. Mm-hmm. Normally when I'm improvising, I kind of think of the audience as being sort of like a fly on the wall. When it's good, the kind of shows that I enjoy being in, that's sort of the relationship is like the audience is kind of like eavesdropping on this show. Um but you obviously can't do that in front of 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. You're the MC and you're the kind of center of attention in your job, especially on the ship. This is like the best thing actually about the ship. I thought I would be much more afraid of this than I turned out to be. Mm-hmm. I ended up loving this. A ship is um, just like a floating carnival. Mm-hmm. It's a small city with like two casinos and and more bars than you can count and musicians everywhere. There's always stuff to do. And so if people get bored with your comedy show, they just leave and go somewhere else because there's more attractions. So you have to learn how to like hold people there. You have to learn how to develop your personality and keep people interested in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that come natural to you? Um, I would say, you know, having a sort of theater background, uh, I'm maybe a little more comfortable than the average performer with getting out there, both desiring to hold their attention and being okay when they drift away yeah, yeah. or they fall asleep or whatever it is uh, because it's their vacation. Totally. They aren't here to see me really. Totally. They're here to see me because they don't have anything else in their evening Yeah, or, or they, they are uh, tired of the casino and drinking for a moment. Yeah, as you get. Yeah. It, it, the casinos are exhausting. They take a lot out of you. Well, a lot of those folks get the... Um, Unlimited drink package, and yep. so they feel pressured to get their sixty dollars a day. <laughs> uh, I don't blame them. Yeah, uh, um, very cl- very crafty, very yes. smart, very yes. smart business. It, it, I took a couple of like important lessons that I think loosened me up as a performer from my time on the ship. One was like doing the games, um, uh, in like the improv sets, not the not the main stage show. Doing the games, it, I learned pretty quickly that like, oh, people love it if you just do them. They don't seem to really care if you're doing them well. Yeah. The fact that you're doing it without question, the fact that you're taking that suggestion or or, or you know what I mean, like justifying anything that they throw at you, the fact that you launch into song when they tell you to launch into song, it doesn't matter if your song makes sense mm-hmm. or is good. 
that you're doing it is like what's getting this applause. And it like, I feel like that realization kind of removed the stick out of my ass. Uh, um, not that you aim for like something lower than you're capable of doing, mm-hmm. but you kind of realize of like, oh, loosen up and just kind of like trust that like, I'll get out there and the worst that happens is I embarrass myself and it doesn't make a difference. People are still just like very, very happy that you're willing to um, take the hit in a way. It mm-hmm. reminds me of like stuff I've read about Mel Brooks where like, mm-hmm. Uh, when Mel Brooks was young, his first job was up in the Catskills. Did you, did you read this? I just watched the the documentary. Okay. So. Yeah. And like his job was to just like basically make a fool of himself constantly to get people to come follow him to go to the theater to see the shows that night. And there is that like a little bit of a thing of like get out there and be entertaining and, mm-hmm. and just be funny and like charm people. I actually, it came to be something that I really, really enjoyed on the yeah. ships. And again, that's the sort of difference between uh, New York and regular audiences. Yeah. The, the New York audiences have seen improv before. Yeah. Every once in a while you get somebody come and say, I just don't know how you do that. You yeah. know, that's amazing to me. I could never do that. But on the ships, that's everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You, so you can certainly, uh, you don't have to be quite as clever and bright. You just need to be big and yeah. silly show you're out there. Entertaining. And, and go for the best direction I got. Uh, our director was Matt Hofty. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, he was like training us for the, uh, the late night uh, adults only mm-hmm. show. And uh, so we were playing the game Innuendo, Mm -hmm. um, which Innuendo, if you don't know it, really simple game. You just get a suggestion of an object and then you take turns coming on out to craft as many different innuendos around that object. So, uh, uh, you know, if you get like, um, I don't know, toothbrush, I like Mm -hmm. my women like I like my toothbrushes. And then you come up with a joke on the spot. Really Mm -hmm. silly game. He gave the best instruction for it, which was um, you want to either get laughs or booze. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Nothing else. It was such a liberating thing to hear. And um, uh, because like it snaps you into this mindset of like, oh, I got to like give these people something that's going to like get a rise out of them in some way. Mm -hmm. And to present yourself sort of as the willing villain. Yes. (laughs) It's great fun. It is. And it it also like uh, taught me something really useful just about like supporting your your teammates mm. because you get suggestions sometimes where you don't know what to do. 185 is another great game. Mm-hmm. You craft a joke out of 185. 185 matches walk into a bar, you know, like um when you sort of sense that like nobody has an idea and you step out even with no idea in your mind and you just know I'm aiming for a boo. <laughs> I'm aiming for you to not like me. Uh, um so even though the audience sees you as like the idiot who can't tell a good joke mm-hmm. and they hate you, you're buying valuable time for yeah. everybody else on stage. And then if you go back to that back line and nobody has an idea yet, you go out again. Yeah. Uh, um, and it actually feels super satisfying to know of like, oh, the audience really dislikes me, yeah. but they don't realize like I'm doing something very useful for people right now. And it's like, oh, you kind of, you you have this odd sense of pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, a little different again from what we do here in the city in that you're, facing the audience more like a stand-up. Yeah. Um, and it you develop I developed these little tricks of like slow walks, uh, the Rodney Dangerfield tie adjustment, yeah. like any sort of goofy mugging that I can do with my face. Yeah. All these sorts of tricks that I would never use here because I'm not going to look at the audience and mug to the audience. Yeah. I don't know if you felt this way. It taught me like a newfound appreciation for the era of like the Borscht Belt comedian or the Catskill comedian that, yeah. you know, the the kind of like, I don't know the right word for it, huckster comedian. I don't know if that yeah, makes well, sense. Yeah, it's like that vaudeville short short pieces yeah. uh, that, that are all, none of them are Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um 
Um, so you have an acting background from mm-hmm. from earlier in the day. What kind of acting did you do? What sort of shows? Uh, in college, well, let's see, around age fifteen, I uh, I just got it in my head that I could be an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not right away, but if I put my life to it, then down the road I could um, pursue it as a career. So I went to the University of Missouri uh, with that on my mind. Majored from theater from day one. Did as many shows as I could with like serious drama. Uh, I started to get into musical theater. That was the very first time in college. And all the weird stuff, performance art, um, theater of the oppressed, any kind of interactive theater, Mm -hmm. any kind of theater that I could, which was, uh, and I got lucky that uh, whenever I got there, people just cast me right away. And Mm -hmm. so I got to perform as much as I wanted in my six years in in Columbia, Missouri. Yeah. How, what was your experience when you moved from... Uh, uh, the world of theater more into the world of comedy. Like, do they complement each other really well for you? Did you have to make a mental shift, or was it sort of like a seamless transition? Do you still borrow stuff from from those days with the work that you do? It was a great advantage at the beginning in that I knew how to face an audience, speak loudly and clearly. Yeah. Uh, those sorts of things that people who don't have a theater background have to learn in yeah. in, in improv. Um, but I also was very raw. <laughs> like those first classes I took. I've recently run into classmates from there and they were like, oh man, you were kind of a scene hog. Mm. I'm like, well, yeah, I was just so eager to like get out there and get better. Uh, but I, I feel like in the past two years, I've started to understand the technique of improv and what I'm doing. Whereas the first three years, I just kind of jumped out. This is like theater. I played characters before and mm-hmm. I know how to make big choices, but without really laying a brick with my partner to build something together, that took a while to learn, certainly. Yeah. Now you're coaching a lot these days. You're mm-hmm. teaching classes. Uh, um, what is maybe this is too sort of broad a question? Mm-hmm. What's your point of view as a teacher? How are you approaching it? What What are the values that you're like trying to pass on to people? Basic fundamentals, uh, top of the scene, working together slowly to establish one thing, and um, the, doing the coaching and the teaching has helped my own performing in that same way. Where you, if you keep focusing on those first couple lines. Uh, you're eventually going to just do it mm-hmm. in your performing. Same on the ship, where if a scene was going wrong, it's because of what those first few lines, like we weren't putting stuff together, uh, laying bricks together, as opposed to I have an idea, this guy has an idea, and we're on disparate pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say in my coaching, I tend to focus on simple up top, uh, and all of it comes from there. If mm-hmm. you do the work at the very beginning, it's going to be so much easier and fun later. Simple in terms of laying out clear information. Yeah, it, hitting the who, what, where stuff uh, in the first couple of lines, if you can, just yeah. being really efficient with that stuff, as opposed to uh, what I used to do. Uh, let's say you initiate a scene as a pirate captain. Um, I might step out as a first mate and just play a first mate, mm-hmm. as opposed to listening to what you said and what's my reaction to what you said. I'm sort of filling out the world more like a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now I, I know that everything that we lay out is potentially the the whole point of the scene. Mm-hmm. So I listen a lot more mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to just um, just get out and jump out and, and be in the world with them. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk more about that idea of coming out and filling it out as if it was a play? I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say you're doing Oliver and you have a big scene with all these orphans and Fagan and this sort of townspeople. Um the idea is that once the curtain goes up and the lights go on, you're just one of these people in the world. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily all working to find one thing or build one direction. 
I'm the Apple Cart guy and I'm just doing the Apple Cart things. I don't even really need to listen to these other people because this is what I'm doing. Uh, and that's kind of how I used to, because I didn't know any better. Yeah. In college, um, I was on an improv, uh, improv group for four years and we never had a coach. Mm-hmm. You know, we never had outside world telling us. It was just what we could coach each other from getting up on stage in front of an audience. Yeah. And, learning the very, very hard way. Yeah. How did you go about doing that? Because that's, that's such like a taboo thing in the improv community to coach yourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we didn't know any better. I mean, yeah. we didn't know that that could be detrimental. And it really wasn't at the time because none of us were nasty about it. Yeah. None of us had the idea that we knew what we were doing. We all sort of worked uh, at, the, at the same peer level. Yeah. Do uh, you know Nick Vatterot? No, a I, don't, guy. I don't think so. Yeah, he's in the stand-up world, but he was sort of an original guy in our group. And then... Uh, a bunch of us have sort of continued on with comedy, which is a strange thing considering that we didn't know what long form was. We only did short form mm-hmm. and we never had anybody give us feedback. I taught a workshop in college knowing only only what I knew from performing. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, why do you think that is? Why do you think so many of you guys ended up kind of uh, uh, having that become your trajectory? Um, I think we got some positive feedback, you know, whenever you put yourself out there and people are like, Hey, you're, you're pretty good at this. Yeah. It's like motivation to continue on and, and get better. Yeah. And, um, a lot of us felt we started to form our identity as comedic performers. Then Yeah, it was like very satisfying to have a hundred people come out and every week and see your show. And yeah. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's a sense of like gratification and appreciation. This, I it's still like, as long as I've been improvising and as many shows as I've done, I'm still like constantly amazed that anyone ever wants to come out and, and see me do anything, mm-hmm. you know, like it, the fact that someone's like even vaguely curious about like, what are you going to do tonight? It's just mm-hmm. like, thank you. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Well, you've got the crazy Cornfeld Andrews pull where, you know, if you're doing a show, people are coming to your show. <laughs> uh, hopefully. Yeah. Cornfeld and Andrews Sundays at uh, <laughs> nine o'clock at the Magnet Theater in January. Uh, um, so let's talk about what you're doing these days. Uh, uh, since you've been back, how long have you been back in New York? Uh, let's see. I got back December 1st. Yeah. I was here for two weeks and then I went home to Missouri for a couple weeks for the holidays. Yeah. And then I've got back January 30 or uh, December 31st. Awesome. Uh, so you're like back into the thick of it now. Yeah. So you have your director series coming up mm-hmm. in February. Um, what else are you doing these days? I'm on two house teams at the magnet. Well, three now, uh, a musical house team Aquarius, which is Tuesday nights, uh, the wrath, uh, megawatt on Wednesdays. And then I just started a sketch group. I'm in a sketch group, a new one called buddy club. Awesome. And we'll be on Sundays. That's an awful lot of time to be devoted to working. Mm-hmm. It is, but you know, thank God that, my financial situation, like I don't have to have a day job, which obstructs being able to rehearse and doing all that stuff. Um, I'm also on a house team at the pit, a musical team called dagger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a huge, uh, um, time commitment. It, it I was talking with, um, uh, Sebastian Canelli about mm-hmm. this a couple of months ago about like the sacrifices that you have to make when you sort of like know what you want and, and know where you want to be. Uh, um, the sort of like niceties of life that you have to cut out sometimes in order to, to free up that time. Have you found that is something that's like difficult you've had to wrestle with or is it pretty like straightforward of like, no, I, I know exactly what I want to be doing and and I will just do that. I've been lucky that I've always been sort of unusually single minded about what I wanted to pursue. Yeah. And there's no part of this that I'm burnt out on or 
have lost the love for. Yeah. Um, there have been people in my generation of improv who've come up and I've seen them get tired of it yeah. and eventually kind of leave. But I've been lucky that I still enjoy every time going out there. Um, whenever I'm in rehearsals, I'm still like, don't take this scene, you know, make the most of this time. Yeah. I uh, really still care about it. Yeah. What in your mind, because uh, um, so you're on the Wrath, which is uh, one of the longer running teams at Magnet um, uh, and a great team. What makes a great team in your mind? Whew. I mean, it's, it's not totally luck, but it is lucky. I've been lucky that my two teams, Aquarius and the Wrath, I've been on for almost uh, three years and haven't broken up. Yeah. I mean, that's not usually the case. You know, you're on a, t- a long running team. The norm is for teams to get shuffled at some point. Um, ours, we have a good, strong core. Uh, myself, Andrew Yerman Glaser, Scott Laurie, Michael Kroll, and Rob Penty were all on the original team and mm-hmm. we're still all together. So that's sort of, uh, as opposed to a team losing a lot of core members but keeping the name, mm-hmm. like that's that's been a huge part of our group identity is keeping those those people. And the additions we've had have been great. Yeah. Like we haven't had any <laughs> any setbacks really. Yeah. It's been lucky. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you guys are, are a team made up of really fascinating individuals yeah. that seem to collectively gel together as a whole in a very easy manner. And we've improved as a group and individually. Like yeah. Mike Dwyer and Andrew Yerman, they, they're at UCB now on those teams. And man, like- after they got on those teams, I was like, I need to up my game. These guys are really, really sharp. Yeah. Scott Laurie, you know, is so watchable. And you know, all those, everybody on the team, it's like, I have to be at my best. <laughs> How do you, uh, uh, that's interesting. Being on a team for a long time, uh, um, a team can be a little bit like a marriage or, mm-hmm. you know, like um, you do start to anticipate each other's rhythms. And so you develop like a shorthand with each other, but also like a marriage, you can kind of take each other for granted a little bit mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of overlook, you know, what you have. How do you keep it like sexy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how do you keep the passion alive? Because that is, you know, I've, I've certainly played with groups and I've known people who um, their teammates maybe are like, working elsewhere and improving and getting better. And that improvement has like no effect on anybody else. They Mm -hmm. just like kind of continue going through the motions, you know, playing on the team has just become like a habit now. Mm -hmm. How, how do you, how do you keep it interesting and and how do you keep it attractive to each other? We're all very committed to our wrath time. We've had the same rehearsal time since we've started, which is Monday nights, nine to 11 PM. Yeah. And that's kind of a rough time, but since we all committed and if, you're going to be added to the team that has to be within your range too. Like whenever we get there, it's, it's time to go and, uh, get better. Yeah. Um, also not, we all have pretty good attitudes. Yeah. None of us are really sour grapes sort of people. Yeah. Um, if we have a bad show, it's a bad show for an evening and then we're fine. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no long harboring, uh, resentment. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's again, you know, how do you, how do you know ahead of time? Uh, that these eight people are not eventually going to go through all the things that every M trial team goes through. We've just been pretty lucky. Yeah. Uh, and we also have, like, I never know what Kroll's going to do. Yeah. On stage or off, and that kind of keeps it alive. Yeah. I know that some of the others feel that way about me, where they're like, they're surprised sometimes. And that's that's what is necessary in my mind. Yeah. Uh, not running. We We really don't rely on some of the strong stuff that we've done before. We're all pretty much... Tonight's a new show. What do we got? Yeah, that's uh, um, that's such a good way to think about it. 
not that you don't want to be proud of like your past accomplishments, but sometimes like your past, you, I mean, we've all seen those people, whether in improv or anywhere else in life that like they end up spending, you know, the high school football quarterback who ends up spending more and more time glorifying the old high school days. And then mm-hmm. before you know it, you're just kind of like out of shape and, and you spend all your time at the bar and, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, um, there is a trick and I haven't worked it out yet, but to not, Joe Bill says this, neither um, uh, uh, like being too hard on yourself for your fuck ups, mm-hmm. nor glorifying yourself for your successes. Like finding that sort of like, like middle place where you're able to just like move on mm-hmm. and judge yourself by the last thing that you did. And, and you know what I mean? Like not prize past accomplishments to the point where you become smaller and smaller in the present and less and less willing to take a risk with people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, going back to it, it just, I love that so much that like you're able to see these other guys on your team who were like really sharp and really great and use that as momentum to be like, I have to step my own game up. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what kind of stuff do you work on individually uh, uh, to keep yourself really sharp and to keep yourself uh, um, uh, tight? Um, into, as individual performers? Yeah, do you, well, for you personally, like, mm-hmm. do you approach shows, do you give yourself, like, tasks that you want to accomplish? Do you watch other performers and, and like, isolate of, like, oh, they're, they're really good at this, I want to mm-hmm. try to make that part of, like, my repertoire or whatever? How do you, how do you, how do you keep yourself improving? Uh, well, I, um, I don't, I do not go into a show with tasks, but after a show, I keep a big log, <laughs> And I do try, I've tried to come up with this sort of score metric that's based mostly on listening, incorporating each other's ideas. Was it group success or was it a couple of people's success? Mm-hmm. That way I can kind of keep track of like, okay, in this show, the audience liked it. It was an entertaining show, but I do notice that my uh, emotional choices were not as strong as they could be. Mm-hmm. So just keeping a little monitor track of that usually helps me, like when we go into rehearsal or something like that, um, watching being a complete student of comedy, uh, learning what you can from all eras of comedy. Yeah. Um, I really, like I've recently been watching a lot of the late 80s SNL just because, hey, I've not seen them. Maybe I can learn something from these guys. Yeah. A. Whitney Brown was this writer on there that I've been so intrigued by. And yeah. Like, I don't know, reading a lot, being seeing a lot of other stuff, um, just being critical, I guess, yeah. whenever you're watching, which is a double-edged sword because then you find yourself... Uh, stone-faced, not really reacting because you're so numb to improv. You're mm-hmm. just like evaluating, but it's always helpful. I yeah. can learn from a level one scene or a great Armando show or anything. Anything I see, there's usually something I can come away from. Do you keep a literal logbook after shows? I do. I got that from uh, Steve Martin and his, his his biography, Born Standing Up. He yeah. said that he started keeping track of his shows just so that he could go back and look at them. And he said he was so happy to have done that because... 10, 20 years down the road, you still have this sort of thing. But in, in, the, in the present tense, just having a finger on the pulse of how your shows are going, how your own personal growth is going. I know that it's a long um, marathon as opposed to a sprint. So it's like there will be setbacks and there's always plateaus and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. if I keep aware, then I bet I'll be better in three years, five years than I am now. Do you Are you the kind of person who looks ahead and plans out goals or do you kind of look behind you and try to develop what you've seen yourself already do. Like do less of this thing, do more of this thing. If that even makes sense. Uh, I do look ahead with goals. I'm, I'm, you know, just as sort of uh, 
something to aim for. Yeah. If I don't hit it, no big deal. I'll continually revise, but I do want to be aiming for something. Yeah. Um, and then it's about keeping a balance, not putting so much on your plate. You know, there's, there's some performers out there that do so much that at a certain point it starts to be diminishing returns yeah. and every team suffers because of it. So I really want to keep an eye on that where I am not um, holding people back or doing so much that I'm fraught and bringing 75% of my best. Yeah. yeah. How do you, as someone who performs a lot mm-hmm. and along with that performances, you rehearse a lot mm-hmm. uh, and you teach, how do you like balance your offstage life in a way to keep your focus something that's sharp and energetic and, and not like frayed at the edges? Uh, I'm very lucky that I'm interested in a ton of other things. Yeah. Uh, I love to play sports, love to watch sports. I play guitar. I have a girlfriend. I live with two guys I went to college with. I love to read, watch great movies. I mean, I'm just very interested in a lot of other stuff, yeah. which helps inform me because, of course, in improv, it's just you with your brain. Yeah. So the more that you feed your brain and the more that you expand yourself, the better you're going to be on stage. Yeah. And I would feel that if I only focused on comedy that I probably would burn out. Yeah. It, it, it's something you see a lot um, when people hit, like usually like the sixth, six-month mark as students. And they become really passionate and just start like absorbing themselves in, in improv. You become, I'm sure that this is true of anything that you feel passionate about. You become sort of monomaniacal about it. And uh, you, maybe you can get like a good year out of that where you're just like learning rapidly and mm-hmm. growing rapidly. But there starts to come a point where it, it starts drying up for you, you mm-hmm. know, like, and it's interesting because like we learn by association and we learn by connecting dots that at first seem unrelated to each other. Mm-hmm. And the more that like learning any kind of skill becomes this sort of like knot that you're trying to untangle and, and sort of get to the root of. And the more you eliminate like outside distractions and just focus on like the solving of this riddle, a lot of times the harder that knot becomes just because the answer is in connecting unrelated things, mm-hmm. hobbies, outside passions like there must I don't play sports but I imagine there are almost limitless connections between what you learn from being a good sports fan or being a good athlete and being a good performer mm-hmm. it's uh, just good to get out of your head sometimes and yeah. play a dumb game I yeah. mean uh, same with going to the gym it's just I kind of turn my brain off at the gym yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it really beneficial to me to, to have um, a lot that I can get away from yeah. comedy I can choose any number of avenues. It's not just one thing, like I only play guitar or something like that. And then um, being on so many teams is a little bit like um, uh, uh, dating seven people at the (laughs) same time, right? Like it's not, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not just kind of like working yourself out to be the best improviser you can be and then bringing that to like six different groups. Mm Each group is its own relationship and has its own needs to attend to and has its own point of view that you need to explore in order to kind of like unlock the potential of that particular group. Mm-hmm. So like what do you what do you think about or look for when you go from show to show? Like how do you kind of reorient your thinking to plug in with that particular uh, um, ensemble? Uh, really what I'm concerned with is doing my best work personally and the group getting close to its best work as a group. Yeah. Uh, and because I've been on teams that have been together for a long time, I kind of know what those uh, benchmarks are. Yeah. You know, I know, I know what a good Aquarius show looks like, even if the audience doesn't, isn't all that into it. So yeah. I can walk away satisfied. Uh, if, if we do what I think is our better work, 
I also have this duo called the Oakwood Boys, which is like probably the only thing I do, which is all material that I'm creating mm-hmm. with my partner, Chris Nestor. And that gives me a lot of satisfaction well, which is somewhat different from the satisfaction of my teams because it's mine. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's less about, all right, team, team, team. It's, it's more about this is what I think is funny and what we think is funny. Uh, I think having maybe one outlet, which is your own, whether it's a blog or podcast or whatever it is that you do that's still creative but less about everybody else is also helpful. It takes courage to, to be able to take ownership of something that you're doing and say, this is what I think is funny. I, I mean, the Oakwood Boys is my favorite thing. I'm so proud of the stuff that we do. And in the weirdest way, it's the most connected to where I come from. Yeah, <laughs> It's rural and has to do with religion. And uh, somehow it's like I'm aiming to satisfy my family or something. Or like I'm, I'm still it's the same guy that came from Missouri. I haven't totally erased that. It's, yeah. it's a nice thing. That's interesting. Can you describe the Oakwood Boys to people? Sure. These are two brothers from Oklahoma, Haas and Donnie Oakwood, and they moved to New York a week ago. Uh, and their job as entertainers is to make the audience better people mm-hmm. uh, by converting them to Christianity. And so it's a song and dance act that's very much in the Branson, Nashville sort of vein. Uh, and their philosophy is if it's not working, smile bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that um, the background that you come from, like a uh, uh, religious background? And, yeah. You know? uh, let's see, my my mom, she got pregnant with me when uh, she was 15. Yeah. So I never grew up in a house where like her and my dad were ever together. So I grew up with her and her parents. And around age seven, I had to move in with my grandparents. And they're a very fundamentally religious, uh, Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And they, all I, all these ministers in my family. And so church was a huge part of growing up for me. Yeah. But I never took to it. I was um, instinctively alienated by it. Uh (laughs) And I I didn't really discover my voice for that until I was like 11 or 12. And I started to be this real asshole in youth group and questioning and sullen and not hating church, just hating it. Uh, And then I moved back in with my mom at 13 and there were sort of no rules. So it was like I grew up in this very tight, uh, claustrophobic sort of upbringing. And then I had no rules. So it's only now that I'm like reconnecting to the religious stuff and like, why do I care about this religious stuff? Mm -hmm. Because it was so imprinted in me then. Yeah. I I mean, it's like in the bedrock of a personality. It's Mm -hmm. so hard to be detached from that. So is the Oakwood boys in a way, like a way to kind of like embrace that for yourself? Yeah. In a really weird way. Uh, whenever I was a kid, my grandma and grandpa taught the children's church. And so I would help them with puppets or play characters and stuff like that. Uh, we had all these, these cassette tapes that were like parodies of famous songs, but with God involved. So like, uh, the Beatles, I want to hold his hand or that sort of thing. (laughs) Like, um, so there was like performing and show business stuff in that. And my grandma's sense of humor is very much a part of Haas and that it's just goofy. Yeah. And uh playing the fool, yeah. happily playing the fool. Yeah. for the for the better cause. With a, yeah, with this positive message. Mm-hmm. That's it's like an interesting thing about like like Nashville or like that culture which is, you know, I'm alienated from because I'm in my own sort of like, you know, northeastern bubble up mm-hmm. here, but like this tradition of like entertainment and performance that's also so directly rooted in a moral sensibility. Yeah, it's connected to the values. Yeah. Uh, because that's the audience of the Midwest. And so like Branson is absolutely this way where it's tinged with religious overtones. Yeah. Uh, it's all from a very conservative perspective. 
but it's kind of like hee-haw where it's, I don't know, it's not above innuendos yeah. <laughs> and it's not above uh, taking stabs at politicians, certainly. Yeah. Uh, it's a very weird sort of show business, but it is show business. Yeah. How You can't really be performing without it reflecting on some level these values that you're trying to promote. Like, mm-hmm. like it or not, that's it, always going to be part of it, whether they're religious values or whether they're values of like, rugged individualism or you know what I mean? Like uh, um, what is your like perspective, like coming from that world? Like is, do you have like a sense of irony to that or do you have a sense of like love and warmth to it? Um, it's just a very curious thing because it's something I don't think about very often. Uh, for, for me, it's both. It's certainly for me, one of the key jokes of the Oakwood boys is that they would never meet success in New York. Yeah. <laughs> They can't come here and expect to uh, dazzle in the in the way that they do back home. It's like it'll never. That's how I feel about Branson Entertainment. It could never probably really have an impact in any way, except to please an audience for the night. Uh, but at the same time, I do love it because there's singers and dancers yeah. and the, you know, like dancing cowboys and hick. I don't know. There's something about it that's really endearing. Because it's close to folk art in a way. It is almost representative of a specific region. It's like creating its own art or something that pleases its own people. Yeah. That's something I would, in my my longest term dreams, I would love to like do a theater series in the Midwest doing a couple of plays that I know that they would love. Like yeah. Oklahoma or I don't know, any, any of that type of stuff. Yeah. The Another thing with the Oakwood Boys too is that like, even though they would never hit success in New York, it doesn't diminish their cheeriness. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's, uh, it's, it, I love when we're in front of live audiences because I don't know, they're not going to get turned off. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Cause we're not trying to, I don't know. I, as Ross Taylor can write out, uh, some material that will speak to the liberal East coast sense. They'll go, Oh, I know he's actually not a conservative guy, Yeah, but it's all in this guise. So we can do whatever we want. It's similar to the Colbert thing. Whenever yeah. you take on the opposite persona, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. But at the same time, it does like these guys aren't the victims of your irony either. Like yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. like you're holding them up to ridicule at all. No. I mean, that's, that's how you have to do that stuff. Uh, whether it's improv or sketch or whatever you can't, uh, nobody likes to see, a victim kicked, you yeah, know right. I mean? You, you want to present it in the best possible light. And if people mentally critique it, then that's their own business. But like, you don't want to, I would never take Haas and the Christian thing and really make it look so stupid. Yeah. That's, that's not my goal at all. Yeah. I, that's what I like about the show is, is even though it, it reflects like a sensibility that, um, is sort of like different from what you expect in Midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, that's not necessarily like there's an innocence and a sweetness to this guy, to these guys. And that's funny, but they are never the victims of like meanness on your part or meanness on the part of the audience. No, if anything, we're trying to be mean to the values of the audience. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and it's interesting, you know, to do that because like, you know, prejudice, sneaks its head in everywhere you know like the most insidious prejudice that you have is the one that you're not aware of Mm -hmm. it's the one that you just like automatically think of someone you know in a particular way and you never like challenge that or question it Mm -hmm. and it's definitely a northern prejudice of like oh like yokelism Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like so the easy thing to do is to kind of like make a simple joke out of that and be dismissive of somebody but what i like about these guys is that they seem to have a sense of purpose 
they have a, like a bottomless well of optimism mm-hmm. and they're like undaunted and, and are enjoying putting on the show for people, enjoying presenting you with these Bible lessons. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that enjoyment in themselves goes such a long way in making them actually feel alive mm-hmm. and not just like um, a punchline. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting to just like thinking, I don't know, I've never really thought about this before, but like the way that you perpetuate like your own cultural values and the comedy that you produce or the entertainment that you put up. Um, Cause like, you know, New York is a really interesting example just because demographically it is so malleable and people come and go at this enormous rate and mm-hmm. you're exposed to every kind of person, you know, in all walks of life, like everywhere. And so like, it's constantly this game of adjusting your sensibilities and, 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 um, trying to find a kind of morality that, um, is both embracing and accepting of like differences between people too, not perpetuating like cycles of like, these are our communal values and this is what we want to pass on to the next generation. But instead more of like a morality that's based on like, um, being comfortable, being different, and sharing the same space together. Mm-hmm. And so like so much of that kind of like New York liberalism that you see in comedy, I think like is rooted in this thing of like fundamentally this kind of like cheeriness of like, let's try to be nice to each other, mm-hmm. you know, like through a good laugh. It, just the differences between that and and maybe more Midwestern communities where there is a little bit more of a sense of like being anchored to your community mm-hmm. of, of like your family has roots here. Whereas like in New York, very few people have roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's interesting, have, uh, in my two and a half years working at the guitar school as a teacher and teaching all sorts of different people, it's it's this uh, different culturally, but the same. Yeah, uh, There are groups and communities within this city which fear change as much as my hometown back home. Sure. Uh, my hometown has like 4,200 people, 0.0029% African-American. Mm-hmm. So it's like just totally white. And they fear change. They don't want any change to their nice little community. Mm-hmm. But up here, there are neighborhoods that I walk through which are very similar, just flipped to a different ethnicity where they like their community the way it is and they don't want to see a bunch of rich, young white people come in and like destroy what they've built. Sure. Um, at the heart, everybody, it's this, the same sort of way. You know, you want to take care of your community. and uh, But being able to reach out from community to community is, is what makes like, I don't know, humanity possible. You can't stay in your own. Well, absolutely. You like everybody needs that sense of stability and security. You know, you get security out of being part of community mm-hmm. people, you know, like take off all our clothes and we're still kind of like, you know, you hear a twig snap in the forest and everybody perks up and, mm-hmm. you know, like we need that reassurance that we're okay and that we're together. Uh, um, and it's interesting because like, in New York, you know, things change pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so like there is this kind of like longing for a community and 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 attempt to kind of like preserve your own sort of cultural identity. And, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, um, it's interesting how like comedy itself becomes this sort of like community building aspect. Like so many people that you talk to end up improvising specifically because of that sense of community that Mm -hmm. they talk about, because it gives you these tools to kind of to almost build like temporary communities with people. Mm -hmm. Like a really good improv ensemble is like a gypsy community. 
You know what I mean? Like it's not going to be permanent. It's going to move on. People mm-hmm. are going to go in different directions, but we're like creating this ability to work together, to be our own little self-sustained community and do something together. And like it, on that, it's a very kind of like 21st century way of fulfilling those needs on a basic level. Mm-hmm. It's you quite know? unique and rare for like uh, the arts in New York, as far as like the other, say the music community, you'll have a bunch of bands that are all in the same building for their show, but they didn't go through classes together. Like once the show's over, they all leave. Yeah, It's a little bit different from here. The theater the community, people show up for auditions. If you're in a show, you're best friends, but once that happens, you just lose touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the improv community has got to be one of the more close-knit, more collegiate-feeling uh, communities in New York. Yeah, It's pretty fantastic. I mean, that's why people, I think, gravitate and stay with it uh, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, collegiate's an interesting word. <laughs> well, in the sense that, I don't know, there's no other art form where we go through the classes together. That's true. And have all these different venues for kind of pursuing the same thing, uh, which to me just feels, I don't know, I, I, I only really felt close-knit to other people in the same way in college. Yeah. Uh, because you're just restricted by proximity. <laughs> you're in the same places all the time and working with the same people all the time. You may not see someone for a year and a half, but when they come back, it's like no big deal. It's not suddenly weird and they have to start over or something. Yeah. It's a very warm thing. Well, and you're traveling together. Mm-hmm. And and sharing your lives with each other for like these chunks of time, yeah, Ooh. your prime years, yeah, <laughs> it, it it is interesting. Like you do develop like bonds with people um, that are very different than any other like artistic experience or performance experience I've ever had. Where oh, yeah, you know the focus, you know, in theater is like to do this production, whereas in improv, it, it, it that's certainly part of it, but it's almost like the productions that you're doing are an excuse to work on these other very basic skills. These building blocks are that are just more about like how to rapidly bond with each other Mm -hmm. and explore that bond for productive ends. Yeah. Yeah. It's great because I don't know, I just, it's, it's hard to make friends in the real world. You know, whenever everybody has such different uh, day job and evening life and they've got family stuff and, this is the one community where you really are getting a lot of time with each other. Mm-hmm. That was another thing that was great about the ship contracts actually was just being forced to spend so much time with a group of people where you're eating together, you're going out together. It's as intimate as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very family atmosphere to that. You have to. Yeah. I mean, that's what's kind of great about it. Yeah. Because nobody seeks that out uh, or to create that sort of circumstance in their lives because you want time alone. You know, you want to go home and have your own thing sometimes and get a little space to breathe. But, totally. Uh, it's great. Like I haven't seen, say, George Fernandez or Robert Cuthill in a few years, but if I saw them, I'd still have like such a warmth and affection for them because a few years ago they were great. I, I loved seeing them and, and uh, spending time with them. Well, you also develop this thing. You learn by improvising for a while to kind of like drop your inhibitions pretty quickly, just like by virtue of yes and and by mm-hmm. virtue of like following each other's lead all the time. Uh, um, you kind of like let go of your own baggage. And there's a really interesting language that you develop with other people who do that, that if you don't see them for a long time, you don't, it's like if you run into someone from high school, mm-hmm. both of you instantly put on your faces. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and you instantly, or at least I do this, I instantly start going through the catalog of whatever accomplishments I've yeah. made in the last few years so that I have them ready to kind of like catch them up on like my biography. Which is the most uncomfortable game to, that you have it's to play. Horrible. Whenever it's, you're like, 
what not what are the things that I'm proud like what are the things that are adult yeah. <laughs> that I could share and they'll go, Oh, okay, I Horrible. understand. Yeah. Whereas when you like bump into like an old improv friend who you haven't seen for a little bit, there's something just like so joyful about like you guys can go right back into the bit immediately. Yeah. And ask them about their kid or I don't know. It's it's um it's just warmer. Yeah. It 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 seems to be like this like wonderful thing of of Again, in my mind, it's a very 21st century thing. It's a very like nomadic kind of art form. It mm-hmm. travels with you. You know, you're able to carry part of it with you wherever you go and connect with other people who share a similar language. But like, it not only satisfies certain creative needs and gives you the tools to 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 um, innovate together, but it satisfies like basic family needs too. Mm-hmm. You learn how to be a family together quickly. Uh, forgiving each other and accepting people with all their flaws, being accepted with all your flaws. It's, uh, I don't know, more family feeling than uh, I had at home. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, oh, this is like the frat experience that I kind of missed out on, this boy camaraderie, or uh, this is what it's like to really work on something together over yeah. time. And I don't know, it's great. Yeah. I, Camaraderie, man, that's another good word. It's like, that's one of those like values to me that are like the easy ones to overlook. Mm -hmm. But when you have like actual camaraderie in your life, like the impact that it has on you, that feeling of like belonging with people who belong with you. Friendship. Well, it isn't until you acquire that that you notice its absence. Totally. Oh, all those years I sort of felt on the outside. Yeah. Okay. Now I know what a real sort of group of people coming together feels like or what it's like to be missed or what it's like to miss your group. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It reminds me like if you read books about like turn of the century New York Mm -hmm. and like street gangs in New York, which were like a little different than what we think of now as street gangs, you know, like, uh, um, but like back in the day when New York was like really teeming and out of control, every block had its own specific street gang Mm -hmm. and they would occasionally get into like wars with each other. But for the most part, it was just, getting each other's back on this block and providing exactly that need. There is something kind of like street gang mentality about improv ensembles. Absolutely. It's a very powerful thing where you're just willing to go outside of your own. I'm willing to back up Emily Shapiro on stuff that I wouldn't back up myself on. Right. (laughs) It's like you want to put yourself out there and protect uh, just because we do this thing together. Yeah. Uh, This invisible thing. (laughs) Ross Taylor, thank you for talking. Thank you, Lewis. Yeah, that's great. Uh, uh, and thank you guys uh, uh, for listening. Thank you so much again, Ross. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Magnet Training Center. We offer various classes in improvisation, musical improvisation, sketch comedy, and storytelling. Please visit us online at our website, magnettheater.com, to find out more about who it is we are and what it is we do.